0: job in st louis i've told you guys about before which is my by far my least favorite job i've ever had um, was working at a the botanical garden there in st louis um, and cameron's laughing because he knows how i'm not an outdoor person uh whatsoever um but i i worked there for a summer um uh, one of our deacons in our church there in st louis got me the job and he was my boss and um It was very gracious of him to hire me on for the summer, and, um, you know, most of my time, though, was spent pulling weeds, (laughs) and so, you know, I mean, it seemed like thousands of weeds each day you would get to pull from different areas, and so, you know, then whenever one was done, they'd move you across across the park, across the garden to a different section, and then you'd pull weeds there. And so, I was just pulling weeds, and I'm on my hands and knees pulling weeds, and I'm Trying not to hurt my back because I don't know how to do this like all these gardeners do, and and doesn't that sound crazy that you could hurt your back just pulling weeds all day? Um, but I sure did once or twice. Um, <coughs> but so I spent my whole summer pulling weeds, and I felt like life could not be more purposeless in that ordinary, mundane job that I was working that summer. And I think the the temptation for us is to think about our lives in that way. Um, Whether we work at a botanical garden or whether we work at an office building. Um, And so we get into our rhythms day by day and week by week. And we do the same thing over and over and over again. And our temptation is to think that everything around us is ordinary. When in reality we serve an extraordinary God who wants to do extraordinary things through ordinary people. And so that summer, as I worked that job, and I pulled weeds, and I did what I was asked, and I dug things up, and I planted things that probably died and, <coughs> and such, I, I went throughout that summer, and the temptation every day was to think like that. But God had much bigger plans and purposes for me than pulling weeds. So that was my immediate task. Um, I remember one day I got to talk with an individual while we were pulling weeds together. Um, He was in a similar situation to me. He was working this temporary job um, pulling weeds side by side and uh, he discovered that I was a Christian throughout our conversation together and um, he asked me some questions about that and I got to answer a few questions and and I remember we started to talk about worship. And he really just didn't understand that whole concept. He didn't understand why Christians would um, meet week by week and sing together. That just seemed kind of odd to him. And, you know, if you're not a Christian, it does seem kind of odd, doesn't it? Um, It seems odd for a huge group of people just to get together to sing and hear somebody talk for 40 minutes or, you know, Lord willing, on some days less than that. Um, (laughs) Not when Luke preaches, though. (laughs) because. (laughs) <laughs> Anyways, so, <the laughs> so we got to talking about worship, and I got to explain to him how we're all worshipers. Whether we're worshiping the one true God or not, we all worship, and the things that we do, and the things that we say, and the things that we devote our lives to, we worship something. And so that day, as an ordinary individual doing ordinary things like plucking weeds, I got to tell him about my extraordinary God. And the thing is, is that God wants to do extraordinary things through you and me, even though we're very ordinary people in many ways. And so as we come to Mark tonight, in Mark chapter 3, that's going to be our main point for this evening, is that Jesus wants to do extraordinary things through ordinary people. And so let's jump in in verse 7 of chapter 3 there. It says Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and all around Tyre and Sidon when the great crowd heard all that he was doing they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd lest they crush him for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And so let's pause before we we're going to go a little bit further in the passage tonight, but let's pause right there and talk about that for a minute. Because in that section, I think what we see is that great crowds came to Jesus because they know that Jesus constantly does extraordinary things for ordinary people. And so Jesus has just been healing the sick. He's been preaching the kingdom, and he's been doing extraordinary things. He's been casting out demons. He's been healing the sick. Um, He's been preaching the gospel to those who need salvation, who need redemption and forgiveness, and lives are being changed. And the word is spreading, and so people from literally all over the place are flocking to this man and trying to find him so that they could just reach out and touch him. Because they know if they could just touch this man, then all the very ordinary problems in their lives might get better. And... And so these crowds are flocking to Jesus, trying to find him, trying to spend just a little bit of time with him, to touch him, to get him to touch them, to heal them, to take away their problems. And Jesus is gracious and merciful. And so as all these people are coming to him, we read throughout the Gospels that he's constantly just healing all of them. He's meeting needs, even even to the point where he's weary and he needs time to rest. But yet, after a long day of doing ministry, people come to him and he still heals them and meets their needs and speaks with them. And so, we see this extraordinary man meeting the needs of very ordinary people. And they're surrounding him. And so he says, listen, we've got to get a boat ready because the, the, the people are coming to the extent where if, if they didn't get a boat and he didn't take a step back, then um, it might be possible that somebody would get hurt. And so uh, they get a boat ready and he's you know, going to do ministry from the boat. Um, and then you see the, the part down there in verse 11. Um, <coughs> it says, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, "You are the Son of God!" And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And so we've talked a little bit about this idea already in Mark's gospel that um, the demons are often the ones who recognize who Jesus is, while everybody else around them it, around them is simply seeking to get to Jesus for what Jesus might be able to do for them. The demons are the ones that understand who Jesus is as the Son of God and what Jesus is actually about in bringing God's kingdom. And so the demons know that they're in trouble. And so whenever he comes around, they start crying out, trying to alert everybody around because they know that, that if, if the political rulers hear about this new king coming, then they might be able to stir up some controversy and hinder the work that Jesus is doing. And so Jesus silences the demons every time they declare he's the son of God, even though they're declaring what is true about him. And, and here's another thing that a lot of commentators point out about this. When Jesus keeps uh, saying, be silent to the demons, he, he does so because he doesn't need the testimony of demons. He doesn't need the testimony of Satan because Satan is a liar and a deceiver. And he doesn't need a liar to tell the truth about him. Because what Jesus is about and what God is about and what we see throughout the story of the Bible is that God uses ordinary people to tell the extraordinary truths about himself and so the reason that he silences the demons in a way is because Jesus doesn't need the extraordinary testimony of demonic powers to tell who he is because he's going to use ordinary people to do that and so that launches us into this next passage here in verse 13 and let's begin there And it says, and he went up on the mountain and called to them those whom he desired, and they came to him. And so I want to pause right there and just note that uh, oftentimes in the Bible, uh, mountains were places where people met with God. And so Jesus goes up on this mountain, and if you think about our series on Sunday where uh, Luke's been preaching through the greatest sermon ever in the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus is preaching from an elevated place, isn't he? And so, and then it makes you think back to where God met with Moses on a mountain in the Old Testament and delivered the commandments to him, delivered his word to Moses on the mountain. And so frequently in the Bible, the mountains are a place where people meet with God. And so Jesus goes up onto this mountain, and he, it says, He called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And so here's the thing that we have to note about Jesus is that If Jesus calls you, he wants you. And that's so significant for us because oftentimes in life we experience a lot of rejection, right? So we experience rejection at home growing up. Maybe you grew up in a home where uh, you had a dad that just uh, continually criticized everything that you did. And so you grew up thinking, I can't do a thing right. Or you grew up thinking, I'm going to prove him wrong and I'm going to do everything right. And so your whole life was this, this experience where you're trying to, <coughs> to get under this, out from under this crushing weight of criticism. And, and one of the most glorious truths about who our God is, is that when he calls out to us and he calls us to come to him, it means he wants us. He wants you. And so you're being here tonight, you're being here on on any night or on any day when we're declaring God's truth, when we're looking at the Bible together, when we're hearing about God and who he is, it's not an accident. Jesus has us here even for very specific purposes. Jesus calls to himself those that he desires. And so already, if God has called you, Your life is not merely ordinary because of who he is and what he wants to do through you. And so then look with me at what it says. It says, And he appointed twelve, whom he named apostles, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. (coughs) And so... Jesus has lots of disciples. He's got lots of people following him, uh, coming to hear him teach, coming to see what he can do and learn from him. And, And he goes up on this mountain, and he calls to himself those whom he desires. And then out of his disciples, he looks at 12 men, and he tells them to come to him. And the passage says that he appointed 12. And so uh, a lot of commentators are going to note that this word for appointed is uh, the Greek verb poieo. Um, And I I hate referring to Greek, but I think here it's helpful. Um, And and the reason it's helpful is because that word means uh, to do or to make. And so um, what some of these commentators will say about that verb and then Jesus' calling of the twelve is that this number twelve is not a, a random number. This number 12 is a very intentional number, meant to get us to think back to the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? When you see 12 in the Bible, that's immediately where, where your mind goes, isn't it? You go back to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then so when Jesus calls 12 disciples, it's not an accident that he's calling 12 it's very intentional, and you find this in a lot of the different authors who write on these things. That that number twelve is very intentional, and then what some of them will say about that verb there, appointed, is that that sense of making something. So he's he's creating a new people. He's creating a new Israel, right? And so if you remember a couple of Sundays ago, uh, Luke referred to Revelation 21 when he was talking about the new Jerusalem and and the church as Jesus' bride. And so here's what it says in Revelation 21. Um, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then if you skip down later in Revelation 21, uh, Then, in verse 9, it says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And we know that elsewhere in the New Testament, the church is the bride, the wife of the Lamb, right? And, And so it says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. "...having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel." And if you skip down a little bit, it says, "...it had a great high wall with twelve gates. And at the gates were twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east three gates, on the north three three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates." And the walls of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And so in Revelation 21, this new Jerusalem um, is described as the bride of Christ, as the people of God. And, and then we see what this new Jerusalem consists of, and the gates um, uh, each one of them referring to one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then the foundations of this new Jerusalem, of this new city, uh, on, inscribed on those are the 12 names of these 12 apostles that Jesus calls here. Except for Judas, of course, he got replaced, right? So. <laughs> but, so a lot of the commentators, for these reasons, they say that what Jesus is doing here is he's making a new Israel. He's making a new Israel and he's restoring a kingdom to Israel. And so it makes you think back to our series on on Acts when we talked about um, how the question that Jesus' disciples ask him before he leaves them is about the kingdom. And their whole talk for 40 days before he leaves them uh, to ascend to heaven is about the kingdom of God. And they ask him, Lord, when will you restore the kingdom? And so often, we've misinterpreted that passage and thinking that Jesus' answer to them is a deflection, that, it's, that he's not answering their question. But in reality, what Jesus is doing is he's not saying, no, I'm not bringing about the kingdom yet. He's saying, I'm bringing about the kingdom, and here's your role in it. And then Luke tells us how the church is built after that, throughout the book of Acts. And we see what Jesus does through his people, uh, bringing about the kingdom in further ways, and restoring it to Israel. And so he appoints 12 men here, and he does so for four reasons. First one is that they might be with him. And so in, in the Jewish culture, part of discipleship Um, When a rabbi would call disciples, and uh, these would be specific individuals um, that were either called by a rabbi or they would ask to be a rabbi's disciple, and he would approve of that, uh, looking at them and thinking, can I train this individual to be like myself? Can I, can I teach them in such a way and lead them in such a way as to where they're going to teach the same things that I teach and live life in the same way that I do so that my legacy lives on through these disciples? And so part of discipleship in this culture was this intimate connection where disciples would be with their rabbi and they would imitate the rabbi. And so Jesus appoints these twelve that they might be with him because part of discipleship is being like him. And this is why Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? It's because discipleship is all about being with God and learning to become more like God um, and specifically like Jesus as he's modeled God's character to us. And so, God desires for his people to be with him. And then look at the second thing. He appoints these twelve that he might send them out to preach. He might send them out. Um, And so, the, the term apostle refers to sent ones. That's what that means. It means someone who's sent out with a specific task, with a specific purpose. And so these 12 are going to be sent out with the purpose of preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And Jesus is going to be doing an extraordinary work through 12 very, very ordinary men. And so he calls them to himself so that they wouldn't just remain with him, but that he might send them out. And one of the extraordinary things about Jesus and the way he does discipleship is in contrast to what would typically happen in that culture is a rabbi would have his disciples with him like all the time and they would learn, 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 learn. And then finally there would be this day in the distant future where uh, it would be their turn to start teaching and things. But Jesus calls these 12 to himself and then he's doing it so that he's going to start sending them out. And so from the very beginning for Jesus' discipleship is not just about people coming to learn from him, but coming to learn from him, to become like him, so that they might go out and share this message. And so that's why we're so excited about Ken Hine going to Kenya, is because... What he's going to do there is he's going to take the gospel and the truths of the Bible and he's going to equip pastors who are going to be sent out from those classes to share this very same message. And so part of what discipleship is about is a going out, is a being sent out. And so if all we ever do is come here to learn and then we don't go out from these walls and share this message, then we're not being discipled. We're not doing discipleship. Because here's the thing. The Bible says that disciples make disciples. And so Jesus calls them to himself that he, they might be with him and that he might send them out. And he's sending them out to preach. He's sending them out to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And then this, this, this fourth aspect here, it says, And to have authority to cast out demons. And so these, these twelve men, these apostles, are going to go about preaching the kingdom, just as Jesus had been preaching the kingdom. And then they're also going to be casting out demons. They're going to have authority to cast out demons, just as Jesus has authority to cast out demons. And if you look back in uh, Mark 1, verse 39, um, It's describing Jesus' own ministry. It says, And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And so there's this tendency in the church today, unfortunately, to think about preaching the gospel and spiritual warfare as they're two separate things. When in reality, Mark and the other gospel writers and the New Testament as a whole doesn't view them as uh, opposite things that aren't connected. And... And so you look at Colossians 1, 13 and 14. And what Paul says there about the gospel. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so typically when we think about the gospel, we think about redemption and forgiveness of sins, right? And absolutely. I mean... Praise God for redemption and forgiveness. Um, But Paul's understanding of the gospel also includes deliverance. It also includes uh, being delivered from a kingdom and being transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. And that's what Mark's gospel is all about. It's about this king who has come and he's proclaiming the gospel of a kingdom. He's proclaiming a new rule and, and he's sending out his messengers to do the same thing. They're going to proclaim the gospel. They're going to cast out demons. And in casting out demons, they're going to declare the authority of the king. It's not just some random action that they do um, that's kind of a supplement to their ministry. It's, it's part of their declaring the gospel. Because when they, when they see a person that's hurting and demonized and they say, In the name of Jesus Christ, I say, Be silent and come out of him. What they're doing is declaring the gospel. They're saying, there's a new king in town. And he's come to rule and reign and deliver sinners from sin. And to bring light where there was once great darkness. And so Jesus appoints these men so that he would send them out to do just that. And I would add to that that the the early Christians, if you look at the end of Mark's gospel the very end. This part was added later, um, so it's not an inspired word from Mark, but we can know uh, some things about what the early Christians would have viewed uh, from this account of the Great Commission. Um, and Jesus says in this account of it, uh, again, it's not an inspired account directly from Mark, but it's something that early Christians uh, would have known about. And it says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. And so Jesus sends these men out to do ministry to do gospel ministry with a message about a new king who restores life. And then let's take a look at who these men were. Verse 16, it says, He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name... I'm going to butcher this, but... Bo... Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, that is Sons of Thunder. <laughs> um, <laughs> I should have just said Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder. I can't say anything. Anyways, so, we got Peter, we got the Sons of Thunder, and then Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. It's a very odd bunch of dudes, isn't it? Many of them are fishermen. Uh, many of them we know uh, did some very sinful things, right? And so let's just let's just think about a few of these guys for a second as we conclude our time together. Um, Simon uh, could never shut up, right? He had a mouth that just kept kept going. Peter did, and he would speak at the most inopportune times, the most ridiculous things, right? And so, if you're like me, that gives you great hope. Um, <laughs> and and he also was called Satan by Jesus. Jesus said at one point, "Satan, get behind me," and and yet, and then he denies Jesus three times. We read about. And and one of the moments where it would have been most crucial to affirm your allegiance to him. And yet, Jesus looks at this man. And says, you're Peter. You are a rock upon which I'm going to build my church, my people. And so he uses this man to proclaim his gospel. And then James and John, the sons of thunder, uh, who were tempted by great pride and grasped for authority and roles that was not their own. That hadn't been given to them. Uh, Incredibly prideful, arrogant moments Uh, there. And yet, Jesus uses these two sons of thunder uh, to do mighty things for his kingdom, despite their pride and their arrogance. And Matthew, the tax collector who cheated people out of their money and who abused his role of authority, he used Matthew to write a gospel that you and I read to hear about this Jesus who changes lives. And Thomas, who uh, would be known for his great doubt. Um, you think of Thomas, and you think of Thomas the doubter. You think of, and yet Jesus was merciful to him and allowed him to touch him, to boost his faith. And then it's believed by many that Thomas would go on to take the gospel to India. And then Simon Zealot, who's... Uh, radical political views uh, he was used to spread a different kind of kingdom a kingdom not of this world and then you come to Judas Iscariot the man who betrayed Jesus yet Jesus throughout the gospels loves him knowing this and allows him to remain around and and cared for him, despite knowing his betrayal and his rebellion would never end. And despite knowing that he would be the one that delivered him over to death. And then you look at these guys like Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. And I don't know about you, but whenever I read those particular names... Without going and doing some research, I know little to nothing about them. Right? Whenever we read names like that, these are among the twelve apostles. And yet many of us couldn't tell little to anything about their lives. And yet these were among the twelve that Jesus called, him, called to himself to be the initial ones that he sent out to proclaim this kingdom. And so what we can learn from this is that Jesus uses very, very ordinary people to accomplish extremely extraordinary things for his kingdom and his glory. And so that means that wherever you're at in your life, if you're called by Jesus, your life is not just ordinary. It doesn't matter how mundane your job feels each day or how difficult your marriage has been lately or how hard it's been to to deal with the various things that are going on with your kids or it doesn't matter if you've been spending a lot of time in hospitals with loved ones who are hurting and sick. Your life is not just ordinary because this extraordinary God has called you to relationship with himself in Jesus Christ. And so you're not just ordinary, because this God became a man so that we might know him and have life, and that we might proclaim him to others and be his disciples, and make disciples of him. So your life's not ordinary, because you know the extraordinary. So with that said, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for who you are. Lord, there is absolutely nothing that is merely ordinary about you. And Lord, you are our creator. And not only did you create us, but when we rebelled against you, you sent your son to redeem us from the darkness, from the sin. And so God, we thank you for your grace tonight. We thank you that very much like you called the original 12, Lord, you've called out to us. You've called us to be in relationship with you, that we might go out from this place and call others to the same. And so, Lord, would you empower us this very week to do that? It's in Jesus' mighty and awesome name that we pray. Amen.